from me, here is Pastor Drew. The center, the cornerstone, the jewel, and the crown of Christianity is not an idea, a system, or a thing. It's not even the gospel as such. It is Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, if you're a guest with us, if this is your first time here, uh, so thankful that you'd spend time with us. Uh, today, we're going to talk about the centrality of Jesus, why Jesus is important in all that we believe. We started this series three weeks ago uh, called The Five Solas, and sola is the Latin word for alone. There's five alones, which we found funny in the first week. Um, but in the 15th century, there's this massive shift in, in Christianity called the Reformation, and Martin Luther was kind of in the eye of the tornado. He wrote this, the famous 95 Theses that was kind of a challenge to the way church functioned based on what he saw in the scriptures. And, and 500 years, over 500 years later, uh, we see the effects of the Reformation when we drive through Oak Harbor and we see m more than 30 different types of churches meeting on a Sunday morning. So if you're new to the conversation, we brought that up in week one. Like, the reason there's so many different denominations is it started back in the Reformation. The Reformation opened the door for people to think differently than the Catholic Church. People began to ask questions about, about leadership and traditions and rituals and authority structures. And uh, the printing press was a part of this. It kind of fueled personal discovery in the scriptures and, and all of it together led to the Reformation. And our movement, the Foursquare Church, is, is a byproduct. It's a fruit way down the road from what happened in the 1500s. Now, with any major event in history, as you guys know, there's a lot of positive things that can happen in major events, but it's not all positive. The, the Reformation had some downsides as well. Within 100 years of the Reformation, all these different denominations and groups that had started all went to war with each other in the name of God and started killing each other. And some say up to 30, 35% of the population in that area was wiped out. So that's not a win for Christianity, by the way. We don't look at that part of our history and go, gosh, that was awesome. Uh, it's, it's actually extremely sad, but this is, what, this is actually a lot of church history. There's a lot of sadness as we look back. Now, as we look back at this Reformation time, there are five major claims. These are the five solas. Two weeks ago, we talked about sola gratia. That is, by grace alone, by God's grace alone, we're welcome into the story. Last week, Stacy preached on sola fide, by faith alone, we are saved. It's not, it's not our works. It's not your works. It's not your activity. It's not your devotion. It's not your dedication. It's faith. Faith alone. Ephesians 2 captures these well, uh, verses 8 and 9. For by grace... You've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one can boast. Everyone say, grace alone. Grace alone. I'll say, faith alone. faith alone. Today we move on to the third sola, solus Christus, Christ alone. Christ alone, like the quote that I read at the beginning. We believe that Jesus is 
central. We believe that all scripture points to the saving work of Jesus. The Old Testament is a story about something that's going to happen in the future. There's this Messiah, there's this Savior. Jesus is going to come and save. And the New Testament is a reflection on the saving work of Jesus by going to the cross, dying, and resurrecting from the dead. It's all about Jesus. And Jesus alone can save. Christ alone. Christ alone. So why... This, I ask a lot of questions when I'm studying history. Why did this have to be a rallying cry during the Reformation? Because the Reformation was a response to something, right? They, they were responding to something that they were experiencing and seeing. So, so why was their response Christ alone? What was going on that would make them say, no, 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 no. It's, it's Jesus. It's Christ alone. To answer that question, we need to go back Uh, to a first century conversation that happened in Caesarea Philippi. Grab your Bible, uh, turn to Matthew 16. Matthew 16, I'll give you a second to get there. It's It's this interesting conversation between the disciple Peter and Jesus, and how you view this conversation paves the way to Catholic beliefs or Protestant beliefs. Let me show you a map uh, where we're at in the story. Uh, at the bottom of our map is the Sea of, of Galilee. This was, this was a, where Jesus spent a majority of his time, where he did a majority of his ministry was right around the Sea of Galilee. And at the very top, you see those arrows pointing up to Caesarea Philippi. Now, this city was really, really interesting in the time of Jesus for a couple of reasons. And it was interesting that Jesus would choose to take his disciples to this city for a couple of reasons. First, uh, it wasn't a short walk. It was 25 to 30 miles uh, from where they did most of their ministry north. And they didn't take the subway. Uh, They walked. Nikki, it wouldn't be a problem for you. You can run like miles. What? Sorry to embarrass you, but you... Okay. You took like eighth or something in the marathon or first in your category? So if Jesus told you like, hey, we're going 25 miles north, you're like, let's go. The rest of us are going, that's a long way. Uh, Anyway, I digress. Second, so the city was a a great distance away, but also uh, this city was uh, really highly pagan. The spirituality of this city was interesting. They, they were kind of deep into practicing worship of these Greek fertility gods. So they had this belief that the fertility gods lived in the underworld during the winter and that they came back out during the spring. And in their mind, water was the way that these gods traveled. They, they came out from underneath the earth through water somehow. Until they went back and forth. And in Caesarea Philippi, there was this natural spring that came out of the base of this rock face. And there were some caverns connected. And I've actually been to this place. I've seen this with my own eyes. But here's a picture of it. Um, so here's what they believed. They believed that quite literally the gateway to the underworld was that cavern right there in that picture. 
This is the gateway to the underworld, the gateway to hell. Quite literally. This is where the gods would emerge every year and return back in the winter. And so they built these temples, they built these places of worship where they would go and they would, they would do a lot of crazy things, including things like child sacrifice. It, w- it was all about like, how are we going to get these gods to come out of this cavern, out of the underworld to bless us so that we can have food this year? Interesting stuff. Now here's why this is Bible information as we read this conversation in Matthew 16. This would have been a very uncomfortable place for the disciples to be. They would, they would have been like, what? Where are we going? But it was also a place very intentionally chosen by Jesus to take the disciples for a conversation about who he was and about what his heart was. And so just picture, picture, they're on this 25, 30-mile hike. They're, they're getting closer and closer to this city. They're, they become aware, like, what they're running into, and they're getting more uncomfortable. I think the disciples are feeling like, are we sure? Like, they might have been whispering to each other a little bit, like, is he lost his mind? We don't spend time in places like this. We're good Jewish boys. This is not a place for us to hang out. Here's the text, Matthew 16, starting in verse... 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you're Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell, keep in mind where they are, shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Great marketing campaign. (laughs) Which is funny if you think about the way we do church today. But that's a whole other conversation. In this story, Jesus sets the disciples up to process what they really believe about him. And he first asks this general question, who do people say that I am? And if you go back, I mean, we're many chapters into the book. If you go back to just chapter 15, Jesus cast a demon out of a girl and fed thousands of people just a chapter prior. So people were talking about Jesus. That's just one chapter back. There were plenty of people that were going, who is this guy? Because there's things happening around his life that are not normal. Who is this guy? But Jesus, as he's gathered with his disciples in this city, he's interested in what they think. Not what they they out there think, but what the disciples think. So he asked them the question, who do you say that I am? Faith, Faith is... 
is always formed in community, but, but the decision to follow Jesus, to trust that he's the Messiah, it's a very personal decision. It's a very personal proclamation. He says, who, who do you say I am? What about you? And Peter, being Peter, responds, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. This is Peter's response to him. And in this proclamation, Peter is identifying, he's saying, you, you're the Messiah, you're the anointed one, you're, the, you're our savior. The language that he uses, you're, you're the one that we've been waiting for, you are the Messiah. You've come to rescue us, to save us. Now, again, remember where they're standing, remember what's around them. They were in a highly spiritualized city that practiced all kinds of weird rituals. And they could probably see the, the temples of worship. They could see the cavern that's the gateway to hell. And this is what Jesus says to Peter. He says, what you have just said to me is actually supernatural. It's been revealed to you by the Father. And on this rock, I will build my church. And guess what? The gates of hell won't stand a chance against it. Everything that you're seeing that seems to be thriving here. Listen, my, my church is going to be built, and there's no form of whatever spirituality you can come up with that is going to be able to stand against what I do. This was a, a, a drop-the-mic type of moment for Jesus. I mean, it literally, literally was, because he, he was not only confirming, yes, I'm the Messiah, I am that guy, you're right, God's kind of let you know that, like, yes, that's correct. But he also proclaims how his church would be built. There's a lot in this text. Right in the middle of this confused and backward city, Jesus communicated how he would build his church. Now, if you're wondering how this connects to the Reformation at all, uh, this is how it connects to the Reformation. In Catholicism... This text is viewed as the origin of papal authority and papal succession. From the Catholic point of view, Jesus gave authority to the individual, Peter. And on Peter's authority, the church will be built. Today, there's a pope who, who carries the mantle of leadership in the Catholic church that has been passed on. There's been a succession and it all goes back to this moment in Caesarea Philippi. So to simplify, the, the Catholic Church believes in Jesus, believe in the truth that he came and lived amongst us. They believe in his death and resurrection. They believe that Jesus is the only way to God. But there's also mediators between us and Christ. There's, there's somebody to help with that process of connection. There's a pope and there's, there's a priest or... He, he, Prayers to the saints. We, we'll pray to the saints, and the saints will intercede. So there's, there's kind of layers between us and, and God. Because to have a direct relationship with God, that is, that's a stretch, right? That, how, how is that possible? We need help. We need, somebody, we need somebody to help us have conversations with God. <laughs> we need somebody to, to, to decipher things for us. For hundreds and hundreds of years, the church operated in this manner. And if you think about it, again, historically, the general public had very little access to the scriptures personally. 
We live in a different time. They didn't have a lot of access. What they knew of the scriptures came directly from the priest. And if you grew up in a system that the priest was the gateway to God, why would you question the system? On top of that, many people were illiterate in this time. And even if they could read, they couldn't go to the local bookstore where there was hundreds of different versions of the Bible to pick up. This is not, this is not how the story was for them. Well, the reformers... As they're studying the scriptures, they became really uncomfortable with some of the realities that they were seeing, and they began to see a separation from what the scriptures taught and what was being practiced, and they started saying, hold up a second. Wait, 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 wait. I'm not seeing this. I'm not seeing this actually explained in the scriptures. Andy Stanley uh, wrote a book called Irresistible. He says it this way. The reformers were primarily concerned with the way the church distorted doctrines related to salvation and authority. Borrowing from both pagan and Jewish traditions, the church had established its own priesthood. As was the case in all ancient religions, priests served as mediators between God and the people. Now we understand, I mean the Old Testament is full of that, right? We'll read a text at the end of today that kind of shows... There's a different system now, but we, are, we, we get the priesthood. God established the priesthood. Martin Luther, he couldn't ignore what he was seeing, what he was reflecting, what he was reading. Humans once again had taken a gift of God and, and, and distorted it and turned it into something that they could control. And if you've talked with people outside of faith, that tends to be one of the things that they say about the church, Right? The church is just a system of control. In some ways, yes, they're, they're not wrong. <laughs> in fact, even in today's reading of Peter, supposedly becoming the rock and gaining the authority, it doesn't take long for things to go sideways. Let's go back to the story. Matthew 21, verse 21, same chapter. If Peter indeed was the rock on which the church was going to be built, I almost immediately have concerns, okay? Listen, listen, this is literally the next section. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Now, if you think about Peter as just being a human, I wonder if Peter, after this moment of revelation, and this moment of being said, on this rock I'm going to build a church, was feeling pretty good about himself. (laughs) And in this moment, as Jesus is describing what his plan is, Peter's going, "Uh, that's not really how the Messiah is going to handle things. Don't worry, guys, I got this. The rock is here, you know? The rock is going to help. Jesus, hey, I got to talk to you for a second. You know that whole, like, you're going to get, yeah, I think you're missing it. Like, Peter found the courage to tell Jesus that he's missing it on what his plan for ultimate salvation for creation was. That's just my read into this, right? Don't worry, Jesus. I've got you covered. We'll take care of you. 
But listen to the response of Jesus. Verse 23. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So Peter the rock quickly became a mouthpiece of Satan because he couldn't see the things of God clearly. Now, if you follow this idea, and you do you like follow this idea throughout history, this is repeated actually over and 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 over again. As human beings, we have this incredible ability to set our mind on the wrong things that are not of God. We simply don't see what he sees. And this is why Protestants view this conversation with Peter a little different. We believe that in Matthew 16, Jesus was affirming Peter's confession. Peter's confession that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. And on that confession, the church would grow. And nothing could stop the church. The rock was the confession provided supernaturally to Peter. He sees it. That Jesus is the savior of the world. And you don't need a, a pope or a priest or a saint to come to Jesus. We have access to Jesus. And the reformers, they lived in a world where there was lots of layers between you and God. And they began to cry out, Christ alone. Christ alone is your hope and salvation. And this idea, along with the distribution of the scriptures due to the printing press, it changed the course of church history. It really did. Christ alone. Everyone say, Christ alone. Christ alone. In the coming weeks, we're going to finish up with these last two solas, scripture alone and the glory of God alone. But I want to I go back into the story that we just read. And I want us to to process this one more time because I, I think it's actually really, really helpful uh, in understanding the way God works with us. And I mean that individually and I mean that collectively. It's this beautiful picture of God's heart and how he, he leads us. The only reason that the disciples are in Caesarea Philippi that day is because Jesus at some point showed up in their life as they were working, as they were going about their business as normal, and he said, hey, come and follow me. And he, and he showed up to each one of them and said, listen, come and, come and follow me. And they had to make a decision. We're going we're gonna to choose to follow this guy. We're going to leave behind what we're doing. We're going to choose to follow Jesus. Now, the disciples, they did not fully know what it meant. Obviously, this is way into the story, and Peter is still helping Jesus with his job. They're still, like, they're still working it out. They had no idea what it really meant, but they chose to, to follow him. It was an incredible opportunity for them to see God at work in the world. And I, I think that, that actually this is the journey for all of us. The, the journey is God invites us to come and see. He, he actually says, come and observe the way that I work. Come and see how I've worked. Come and see how I've created the world. Come and see how I've 
navigated through history and spoken into history and worked through different people. Come and observe it. Come and see. Pay attention. Watch. Learn. The disciples, they, were, they lived with Jesus. They were able to see, quite literally, God living amongst them. Like the way that he talked and the way that he related. Can you imagine? Like They, they had shared meals together. They, they watched him talk to all kinds of different people. They saw his posture with kids. They, they saw how he related to humankind. Beautiful thing. All of it was an opportunity to, le- to learn about God. And they weren't the only ones, right? There's, as Jesus continued his ministry, even though he was saying, don't tell people who I am constantly, people were saying, this guy, like, you've got to see what just happened. Somebody just got healed. A demon was cast out. There was a ton of people, and they were hungry. Now they're not. It's wild what he's doing. And so these crowds were gathering around, and they were all trying to figure out, who is Jesus? Who is this guy? What, what is he doing here? What is he here to accomplish? I think we spend a good part of our lives simply observing God from a distance. We acknowledge, we can acknowledge that he's real. We can acknowledge that, yes, he's at work in the world. We can even acknowledge the scriptures, but it's not personal. We're kind of just on the outskirts looking in. It's much more like, a, this is sad, but like even church, it's kind of like going to a concert. Like you get excited, the concert's coming this weekend, it's going to be great, you get a little pumped up about it, you show up, oh, it was so good, we were all together, and there was, ah. <laughs> and then you just go back to life as normal. Just watching from the, this is, we're just kind of watching, observing from the outskirts. In this conversation with Jesus and the disciples, he's leaning in. He's he's pressing into them. He knows the buzz that he has created. He is the Lord. (laughs) He's aware of what's happening around him. He knows that there's many questions being asked. He knows that people are trying to figure out who he is. He knows that, that some people love him and some people are preparing to kill him. He knows that some people are excited about what he's doing, and some people are like, this guy is creating some serious problems. He knows some people are showing up because they're like, sweet, free food. He knows that some people are showing up because they're desperate for change. He's well aware of what's happening in humanity. And he takes this step further with the disciples. He says, listen, I want to know what you think. He starts by asking him the question, what does everybody else think? And they tell him, I don't know, maybe you're John the Baptist, or they're trying to figure that out. But what about you? Jesus is pressing in. Say, I don't care what anybody else thinks. I do, but I care about what you think. Who do you think I am? He made it personal. This is what's beautiful. God is personal. Again, he knows your name, he knows your story, he knows what the, the life that you've lived, and he, he's present with us this morning saying, hey, hey, what do you think this morning? Who do you see me as? Who do you think I am? What do you think I can do? What do you think that I've done? He, he draws us 
He draws us close. The very first followers of Jesus had to decide, do I believe that this guy in front of me is actually the savior of the world? And you follow that again through history to where the reformers were saying, who is this Jesus guy? Is he who he said he is? They had to wrestle with it. And today we engage this story saying, is is what he says here, is what's revealed here to Peter, is what Peter proclaims with the confession of his mouth true? Is Jesus, is Christ alone the hope of the world? Is he the one that can save me from my sin and my brokenness? Is he the one that can restore my life? Is he the one that has the power to sustain me through this tragic situation that I'm walking through right now? Is he the one that can give me peace when there's no peace? Is he the one that can hold me together when I'm falling apart? Is he the one that's okay with me falling apart because he holds the whole world in his hands? Who is Jesus? Who do you say he is? Who do I say he is? He's drawing us close constantly. Today, we've got to figure out our response to this question. Who do you say Jesus is? Personally, who do you say he is? Is he just a great teacher? Is he just another amazing guy that did amazing things? Is is he the Messiah? Is he the savior of the world? Worship team, you guys can come and join me as we close. Today, um, it... We don't really change a whole lot as human beings, actually, over time. We live in a world that's not a far cry from Caesarea Philippi. There's a whole lot of weird spirituality out there. Agreed? And to be clear, I'm not creating an us versus them type of situation. There's a lot of weird spirituality in this room. There's an us and him. We live in a world that it can be very confused spiritually, of which we are included. There's plenty of practices being approved and legislated, and we could get into that. I get emails every month telling me how the world's falling apart, and the church needs to answer the problem. The church needs to fix the problems. I may be rusty on my history, but it seems to me that anytime the church has tried to save the world, it's only created more problems. Christ alone. Are you with me? Now this is hard to work out because I would rather say, well, (laughs) we need to get our hands on the steering wheel because I'm not sure you know, Jesus, let me help you here. I don't, I'm not sure that the way that you're explaining salvation and your work in the world is actually the way it should go. We sound a lot like Peter. I hear what you're saying, Jesus, but the cross, come on. There's a better way. We have authority. We have power. We have resources. We have influence. Let's leverage all of these things to make God's kingdom happen. That turns into the crusades really quick. Christ alone. 
the confession that Christ alone is the salvation of the world. Friends, we get ourselves into messes because that is not the proclamation of our heart, that Christ alone is the solution to the problems in the world. And those that are making decisions, again, us included, that are not of the kingdom of God are not going to be transformed by any type of pressure from above, any type of law placed on them. The heart has to be transformed to be able to live in the kingdom. We should be on our faces praying. That's our part in the story. I'm not saying you don't engage in, in the systems. In the, I do. I, I do myself. But can I encourage you? If you want to see the world changed, get on your face and plead for God's spirit to move on our earth and in our city and in our state and in our country. Be on your face. Say, God, forgive me for the way that I try to be a Peter. <laughs> God, forgive me for the, for the things that I do that actually muddles things up. Teach me to be a servant like you are a servant. Teach me to love people like you love people. Not just the ones that I want to love. I'm really glad you died for the ones that are messed up. So teach me to live this way myself. Who do you say Jesus is today? Hebrews 4. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Let's pray. Jesus, we make a broken confession that you are Lord of the universe. And we draw near to the throne of grace today. There are things that, that we need changed in our hearts, in our minds, in our families, and in our city, and in our state, and in our nation, and in the world. We start at home this morning. Search my heart. Search our hearts, God. Where you are not, Lord. Teach us. Teach us what it means to, to trust you and to follow your lead. And And save us, God, the places that we need redeemed and restored, the, the brokenness and the pain that we've experienced and the questions that we have. Jesus, you've been so faithful throughout time to meet people where we, right where we are and lead us in healing and restoration. 
You don't leave us. You, ch- you change us. You transform us by your spirit. Help us to trust that today. Strengthen us by your spirit. You alone, Christ alone, you are the salvation and the hope for our souls. We trust you in your name we pray. Amen.